You're listening to a sermon preached at Redeeming Life Church. Well, good morning. There's some some new faces in here, so I'll, I'll let you know I'm Pastor Brian. I'm the lead pastor here. We're in a series through the book of Acts. So if you have your Bible, uh, you want to make your way to Acts 15, verses 1 through 35, or you want to open up your app and head there. If you do not have a Bible, there's probably one somewhere underneath one of the seats somewhere near you. If you do not own a Bible, there are Bibles out in the lobby. We'd love for you to have one of these. Um, I'm not going to immediately jump into the reading of the text, although that is my normal practice. We have a lot of scripture here, and I'm going to work through it little by little. So, Acts 15, verses 1 through 35. And I have to tell you, I've lost count. I've lost count how many times someone has come to me And they have argued against learning theology or learning doctrine by citing disagreements about theology and doctrine among Christians. They say, well, we should just all get along and agree with the Bible perfectly. That's the argument. You know, there shouldn't be any disputes of theology and doctrine. To which I always want to respond, that's a really interesting theological argument you're making. Um, (laughs) And, and we're going to see maybe that, that that thinking, that doctrine, doesn't actually line up with what we see in Acts chapter 15. Right? In reality, we work out our faith and our practice together in community. And when we do this, we're going to run into some theological disagreements and some, some misunderstandings from time to time. Sometimes even our faith and our Our practice and the way that plays out is going to come into disagreements with others, and historically that has very much been the case. The church has worked through these sorts of things, and it's in those times, in those disagreements, when the church really drills down into what God's Word has to say and really figures out some very big, rich theology that we hold on to. It's when some of these great creeds come out, and some of the things that we're forced to press into cause us to know those things even better and be more grounded in our theology and hold on to sound doctrine. Right? That's what's happening in Acts 15. We've come to this major event in the first century church. It takes 35 verses of this book to tell the story. It's all one unit of thought, so I don't want to take just a part of it and just another part of it. It's, it's complete, starting with a setting and then moving towards the conflict and then, and then going all the way to a climax, and then it comes to a resolve and resolution, and I want to look at the whole thing together. So um, what we're going to see through this whole thing is, is a, it's a conflict that we're used to seeing here in Utah, too. It's nothing new. This is great encouragement for us. We're going to see this faith versus works argument when it comes to salvation. Are there things we need to do to be saved, or is it just by faith? That's what they're running into. And rest assured, I can tell you know this, we are saved by the grace of our Lord Jesus, and not by works or not by any stuff that we can do. Yeah, that's what they discovered God's Word says. That's what I hope we see that God's Word says. That's really the point of the text. Therefore, that's going to be the point of my message. We are saved by the grace of Jesus, not by the works that we do. Now, I know most of you in this room, you've come to grips with that. You've worked through it. You hold on to that. That's part of your confession of faith. You anchor to it. So for some of you, I want to give you a little extra something just to notice and see as we work through this. I want you to notice that God's gathered people 
Rely on God's word and the Holy Spirit to know right faith and practice. All right, very rarely do I give us sort of two things to look at, but I want to give us these two things. And, and if you're not anchored in the first, just hang on to that one. But if you're confident in the first point that we're saved by grace, not works, then I want you to see that God's gathered people rely on God's word and the Holy Spirit to, to drive us toward and to know right faith and right practice. All right, so I'm, I'm going to take this whole theological kerfuffle in parts. Again, not my normal practice. Normally I read the whole text. We pray and we start, but we're going to go a little bit at a time so we can walk through the narrative and see if we can get some clarity. All right, so first let's pray, and then we'll open this up and take a look. Lord, we need your help to see. Lord, as we walk through this story, let it not just be a fascinating drama. Lord, let it speak to us and guide us and direct us. Help me to to walk us through it well, that we would hear it well, that we would respond to it well, that it would shape and inform our lives. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that guides and directs us, and now we are pleading, guide and direct us, that we would see Christ and Him crucified, and that we would see your glory in this narrative. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to start with uh, verses 1 through 5. Acts 15, verses 1 through 5. God's Word says, Some men came down from Judea and began to teach the brothers. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. After Paul and Barnabas had engaged them in serious argument and debate, Paul and Barnabas and some others were appointed to go up to the apostles and elders in Jerusalem about this issue. When they had been sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles. And they brought great joy to all the brothers and sisters. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church, the apostles, and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them, and to command them to keep the law of Moses. So here we have the setting, and I I want to encourage us to be cautious. It's important that we be cautious not to simply brand these believers who are part of the Pharisee party as the bad guys. Like That's normally our tendency, that's normally our habit when we hear the word Pharisee. Automatic bad guy, right? But Acts 15.5 says they were believers, of that party. They they were coming out of that persuasion, but they were believers. And we also need to notice, we're going to see here in a minute, they were invited to gather with the apostles and the elders and the whole church to work through this issue together. They were a part of this church. They were not outsiders. It is so easy to think that they are nothing but troublemakers, right? Jesus was contending with them. They had some issues. But that's not the point, and that's not what we should get bogged down here with. There's a question at hand that they're trying to deal with, and I think it's a reasonable question. It's a question between Judaism and and Christianity. How how do these things relate? It wasn't entirely clear to them at this point. How does this work? How do the Old Covenant and the New Covenant relate to each other? How does the Old Testament fit with the New Testament? These are good questions, right? So so these guys were were working through this. They're They're asking pretty good questions. And they needed to get to the heart of this. And and don't forget, we need to remember, they didn't have a written down New Testament canon at this point. 
What was happening literally in their circumstances is what we're reading in our New Testament canon, but the Holy Spirit was still working through the apostles. Letters were still being written. This hadn't been worked out yet, so they didn't have the same luxuries that we have. We need to, we need to offer them a little bit of grace, and this is why they need to, to trust on and rely on the Holy Spirit and the teachings of the apostles who, who spent three and a half years with Jesus during his earthly ministry, and, and they just had to sort it out. Now, we have all those things. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the teaching of the apostles. Right? But we don't have to go all the way to Jerusalem to talk with the apostles because we do have this Holy Spirit-inspired, apostle-written canon of God that we can consult, praise the Lord. Right? So when we ask the questions, we will go to that. They didn't have that. And what was the question at hand? The chief question they were wrestling with. Don't these Gentile believers need to become a part of God's covenant community in order to be named among God's saved people? That's the question. It's not just circumcision. It's do they need to be a part of the covenant community to be a part of God's people? And then they bring out and bring forward that it's obeying the law of Moses and circumcision that does that. Isn't that what the law of Moses was doing? Wasn't the law giving instruction for, for how they were to be God's people and how God was to be their God? Isn't that what it was all about? They've been studying it their whole lives, generation after generation. Isn't that it? Yeah, that's it. That's it. So it makes sense. That's what would be kind of working around in their mind, right? It's very reasonable. So don't these Gentile outsiders need to surrender to the law of Moses and take for themselves the sign of the covenant people, which in this case is circumcision. After all, faithful Jewish parents have been circumcising their boys on the eighth day for generations. It's to indicate that they're part of this people, part of God's people, part of the covenant community. So therefore, it just seems like these Gentiles need to do the same thing, right? That's what the law is saying. That would, that would mark them among God's covenant community. This all seems very reasonable. But there's a lot going on here. And like any good debate, there's also some bigger issues and bigger questions that are kind of hiding underneath the surface. So hey, these guys should be, these guys should be circumcised if they're going to be saved is hiding a bigger question which we see in the next part of this. The bigger question is, is this salvation that we enjoy really for non-Jewish people? I mean, this is for us, which is great. We're God's, we're God's chosen special people, these Jewish people. That's who we get to be, these Pharisee believers are saying. But is it really for everyone? Is it really for these Gentiles and for these people of other nations? Let's see how the church handled this question of the conflict. So now look down. We're going to go uh, verses 16 through 21. Verse, I said 16, verse 6 through 21, I'm sorry. Verse 6. The apostles and the elders gathered to consider this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers and sisters, you are aware that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the gospel message and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he also did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now then, why are you testing God by putting a yoke on the disciples' necks that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? On the contrary, 
We believe that we are saved through grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in the same way they are. The whole assembly became silent. And listen to Barnabas and Paul describe all the signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they stopped speaking, James responded, Brothers and sisters, listen to me. Simon has reported how God first uh, intervened to take from the Gentiles a people for his own name. And the words of the prophets agree with this as it is written. After these things, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. I will rebuild his ruins and set it up again. So the rest of humanity may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, declares the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. Therefore, in my judgment, we should not cause difficulties for those among the Gentiles who turn to God, but instead we should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from eating anything that has been strangled, and from blood. For since ancient times, Moses had those who proclaim him in every city, and every Sabbath day he is read aloud to the synagogue, or in the synagogues, excuse me. So the Apostle Peter stands up, and he argued in verse 7 that God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the gospel message and believe. He's making this proclamation, and he said God did that. God caused them to believe. It was God's choice that they would believe and be saved. That was what he's arguing. No circumcision necessary. No, no conversion to the first law no conversion to, to become this Jewish person identified by the law of Moses. It wasn't necessary. Then in verse 9 he said, God cleansed their hearts by faith. They were people of faith, even before they were baptized, even before they did any kind of act. They were made part of God's community by faith, not by physical birth into God's community. Just like Abraham just like everybody who came before, they were made God's people by faith. And it didn't have anything to do with their nationality, their physical birth, their race. Then in verse 11 he said, We believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way they are. So he said, look, we, it's kind of a tricky little twist. Not they're saved like we're saved. No, we're saved like they are saved. Salvation for the Jews and Gentiles was the same. Not the law for the Jews and not faith by grace for Gentiles. There wasn't any difference. There wasn't any distinction. It was grace by faith for everybody. Everyone. So now we know where Peter stood. That's, where he, that's the, the line in the stand he drew in this debate. People are not saved by being Jewish or following any of those laws for salvation. Anyone who is saved, Jew or Gentile, is saved by the grace of God Anyone in God's redeemed community was bought by the blood of Christ and brought in by new birth, not original birth, from their parents. Then the apostle James, so then, then, then uh, Paul and Barnabas stand up and they kind of share some stories. And then the apostle James stands up. And James uses scripture. Now remember, we don't have New Testament scripture. He has to go to the Old Testament scripture. He uses scripture to make his argument, which is a Pretty good way to make an argument, I would say. Let's appeal to God. Let's see what God has to say. And he quotes Amos 9, 11 through 12. 
which is really interesting, actually. Uh, Amos was pronouncing judgment on Israel and Judah during the divided kingdom. They're both split. There's judgment coming. Uh, there's northern kingdom Israel, southern kingdom Judah. And, and, and Amos is like, look, there is some really bad destruction coming to you guys in the north. You're going to be totally wiped out, which is what happened. And then he says to Judah, he warns them, you're going to be judged too, but not totally destroyed. Instead, he says, God will restore the fallen shelter of David, meaning the people of Judah, who have then fallen and been exiled. He's going to restore them for a purpose, which happened. But what James zeroes in on in this verse, if we were reading it and doing a Bible study, we probably wouldn't zero in on it. What the Jewish people probably didn't zero on, James makes front and center. He's not looking at just the fact that they're going to be restored. He looks at the reason why God was going to restore the house of David. It says, so that, for this reason, because, here's why. It's not for nothing. It's not just for them. It's for a bigger purpose. So that all the nations will bear the name of God. Or to put it as James quotes it, he quotes it a little differently. So the rest of humanity may seek the Lord, even the Gentiles who are called by my name. That's why there was a remnant restored. That's why they weren't just wiped out forever. That's why they got to come back, build a wall, build a temple, do all that stuff. So that all of humanity would hear the proclaimed name of Jesus. James was saying that's the very reason the people called the house of David, the Jewish people exist in the first place. That was the reason for this whole thing. So that all the people on the earth would hear the proclaimed name of the Lord. They didn't need to be adopted into the Jewish identity. They needed to take on the identity of Christ. Just as the Jews need to take on the identity of Christ. Or to say it another way, the name of Christ. When they have this name of Christ, that's what it takes to be saved. That's what they're arguing. Okay, if you want to become a Christian, that's what it is. Not keeping the law of Moses, not being circumcised, not even being baptized. Seeking the Lord and being called by his name. Okay, but what in the world does that mean? That's just not everyday language we, we throw around so easily. In Galatians 2.20, Paul, he explains it this way about himself. He said, I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live in the body. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, Paul's life and identity are no longer in himself. They don't rest in him because he's saying, I have died with Christ. Not physically, but metaphorically. And I've been raised in Christ. That's kind of the picture we see in baptism. Dying to self, going into the ground, being raised up to new life in Christ. Right? He's saying, I've been marked and identified by the death and the life of Jesus Christ. That's where I find my identity. That's, that's where I find my being. John, and these guys were there at this debate, the Apostle John explains it in John 1.12. He says, to all who receive him, he gave the right to be children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so when we believe in him for who he really is, who he says he is, his identity ends up on us. 
talk about being washed by the blood. That's his being, his lifeblood, his identity cleanses us. And now we are marked by him. And then also we take on the family name. I think most of you all have at least two names in here. I don't, haven't met anybody with only one name for a long time, if ever. We have a name. And your family name ties you with a whole bunch of other people, right? It marks you with a certain identity. So our family name becomes Christ. We take on that name when we become his children. And just an interesting side note, one more piece. Acts 11.26 says, The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. This church is having this dispute and then coming out of Jerusalem. They were first called Christians there. Okay, the believers were identified by the name of Christ and still are today. By their faith in Jesus, outsiders have looked in and said, we see this mark on you and therefore we're going to call you Christians, which ironically was intended to be derogatory and they took it on like something they said, you bet, we will take on that name. The name Christian is to die to yourself, to let go of your own kingdom building, to let go of your identity. Not that you lose your individuality. God uses those things, but you're no longer anchored in who you are, but you're anchored in who Christ is. So simply calling yourself a Christian isn't going to do it. You've got to have this true faith in this true Savior and be truly marked by Him. We're saved by grace in Jesus Christ not by our works, not by just declaring it. Jesus does it. Okay, so the council has come to a pretty good position here. And we see in all of our study through the Bible, we, we come to these same conclusions, but they weren't done. They weren't entirely finished. There was this, this little extra thing. James had a suggestion about four things they should ask the Gentiles to abstain from. There's these four things. It's things polluted by idols. They should abstain from sexual immorality, from eating anything that has been strangled, and from blood. Okay, then, he, then he suggests to them sort of this, it's almost a facetious statement. He says, if they want to learn any more about the law of Moses, they can go to the synagogues. It's preached there every Sunday. Go for it. Saturday. Go there. It's being preached there. It's, and it's been there for years. If they want to learn more about the law, they can do that. So he's pointing to the law in some way. He's saying, this has to do with the law, and if you want to learn any more, you can find it there. Okay, why these four things? Like what? Of all the things, and as Christians, they, they should be avoiding some of these things anyway, right? So why does James need to say this? What is this? Okay, we need to be very clear. James is not saying if you abstain from these things, you can get saved, Gentiles. He just made an argument that that's not the case, right? He, he's saying like these Gentiles who... who in this day, have more than likely been uh, baptized to make their profession of faith public to the world and to the other Christians. Uh, they've probably joined this church. They've been gathering together. He's not saying to them, do all that, and then also, here's some other things you need to do to be saved. He's not doing that. He's saying something else. It could have been that James was telling them about these four things because we find them in Leviticus, and in Leviticus, they're to apply to the Gentiles who are living among the Jewish people. These were God's command to people living among the Jewish people in that day, the Gentiles, that they were supposed to follow, but I don't think that lines up with the argument he just got done making. He just got done saying, 
these things aren't the things you need to do. You need to be identified with Jesus. So it seems odd that he would go, go back to Leviticus and obey those four things. It's there. It has something to do with what James is trying to say, but I don't think it has to do with that. It's not Gentiles obey those things. Instead, these would have been the specific things that would have caused Jewish Christians who are still trying to adhere to the law of Moses and follow Jesus, who are wrestling through some of these complexities to have concerns about fellowshipping with Gentiles. So if the Gentile Christians were willing to to die to themselves and love their, their fellow Christians who would be Jewish in this regard, if they were willing to do that and avoid these things, some of these Jewish Christians who who hadn't grown well in this maturity, might be more comfortable and have unity with them. Right? We have mixed churches fellowshipping together. So this statement I don't think is about the Gentiles. I think this statement is these long-standing Jewish folks, like these Pharisee party folks who've become Christians and are still trying to untangle all that they've grown up with and all their tradition and all the stuff that's been sort of fed in. They're struggling, okay? It'd be like somebody from our predominant faith here who, who comes out of that religion and then still struggles for a while when they walk in and see coffee in a church or drum sets in a church because they didn't do that in the faith that they had left. And so there's something there, right? It's something about unity among these Jewish believers and Gentile believers in the church. We still do things like this today. Let me give you an example from our church. Drinking alcohol is not a sin. Drunkenness is a sin. Drinking alcohol is not a sin. Getting drunk, that is a sin. Having a glass of wine or a beer with other Christians is permissible. But there are some, especially if you've come up in a long line and a long tradition of your life, that are uncomfortable with this. And I'm not talking about because you're an alcoholic. That's a reasonable thing. But you're growing through this because maybe you didn't grow up this way in your Christian tradition. right? So because they're uncomfortable, we've just made it a rule here, a simple practice not to have any alcohol at any of our official church things. Just to help keep us in unity and harmony together as we all learn and walk and grow in Christ together. And if there are those who, who want to hold on to that, that's fine. I think that's what James was doing. Okay, we have, some, we have some Jewish Christians that are trying to figure it out. They're working through it, and that's okay. Because the unity among the believers and the growth together in this is important. Very important. Okay, but don't miss. Don't let that distract you from the final analysis of this council. The final piece of this, the council. They determined that we, Gentiles and Jews, are saved by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, not the things we do. And it's so important that it gets repeated in here. All those findings then get repeated. Why, why would Luke spend the, the space? To make that very well known. So they've come to this decision. Now what are they going to do about it? What's the next steps? So let's go ahead and look at verses 22 through 29. Then the apostles and the elders with the whole church decided to select men who were among them to send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. Judas, called Bersabbas, and Silas, we're going to see Silas again, both leading men among the brothers. They wrote, from the apostles and the elders, your brothers, to the brothers and sisters among the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. Since we have heard that 
that some, without our authorization, went out from us and troubled you with their words and unsettled your hearts, we have unanimously decided, by the way, who else was there? The Pharisee party was there as part of the church. They have unanimously decided to select men and send them to you, along with our dearly loved Barnabas and Paul, who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have sent Judas and Silas, who will personally report the same things by word of mouth. For it was the Holy Spirit's decision, and ours, not to place further burdens on you beyond these requirements, that you abstain from food offered to idols, from blood, from eating anything that has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. You will do well if you keep yourselves from these things. Farewell. They selected two men to go back with Paul and Barnabas with this letter to serve as witnesses. Why two? Why couldn't Paul and Barnabas just do it? Well, Paul and Barnabas were partly involved in the whole kerfuffle, so you need some outsiders of good reputation to go and help bring the peace here in the church. But then we need these two. Why? Because based on God's word and their culture, truth was to be established by the testimony of two witnesses. So we're going to follow that, and we're going to send these two guys. So these two guys served as the witnesses to the truth of the letter and the outcome of the council. Well, why these men and not women? Well, probably because in the culture at this time, women were not allowed to testify in court. They had a council. They needed it to be serious. It was a serious matter. They followed that cultural norm and practice. And there's also one other reason, I think, why these two men, these particular two men. Both of these guys were preachers. We're going to learn here in a minute. And both of them went to Antioch, and they encouraged the church in Antioch with, quote, I don't want to hear any of you complaining anymore. A long message. <laughs> That's according to Acts 15, 32. God had more for these brothers to do than just deliver a letter. And more for these brothers to do than just say, yep, that's what happened. They actually went and preached a long message of encouragement. What do you think that sermon was probably about? Salvation by grace in Christ alone. They preached and probably heralded a message about the very thing that was causing these issues. So it wasn't just that they needed two witnesses, they needed these two preachers to go and preach at the church to bring unity around God's word. Now, before we turn our attention to the conclusion of all this, we kind of see how it went, there's an important thing we need to understand. We can't miss it. If you, if you highlight in your Bible, this would be a place to do so. Verse 28, it says, It was the Holy Spirit's decision and ours not to place further burdens on you beyond these. The Holy Spirit's decision. The Holy Spirit determined the outcome, but it was also theirs. There seems to be this tandem working, right? It says, and ours. They worked together to come to this decision, not because, you know, the Holy Spirit was going to be swayed by what they had to say, but because they needed together to discover the Holy Spirit's direction. The gathered apostles and the elders and the gathered church, all hopefully spirit-filled believers by their faith in Jesus Christ, work this out together in the community of believers. 
In the community of believers, it's, it's necessary to do this kind of theology, to work these kinds of things out together with the church. The church is safeguarding good doctrine. The people are working together. The same Holy Spirit was working in each of them to lead them and direct them, to provide them as a group, as a church, in wisdom. I mean, they drew back to the Spirit-inspired Scriptures as well, and the Holy Spirit illuminated them to these brothers as they worked through this, and sisters. Okay, so there's certainly some encouragement to be received here. Isn't there? We need each other. It is through the help of each other that we can get to right theology and right doctrine and right practice. The gathered saints have a very serious role within the church. It's a strong reason why we gather. We need each other. We help guide each other. We help direct each other by the power of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. Even with some who might have differing opinions, differing theology, differing practice, it's not a call to be all exactly the same, but to use the gathered church to seek the work and will of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so finally, let's see how this whole thing concluded, and we'll conclude with this. Uh, verses 30 through 35. No, excuse me. Verses, yeah, 30 through 35. So they were sent off, the four of them and whoever else is with them. They were sent off and they went down to Antioch. After gathering the assembly, they delivered the letter. They gathered the whole church together before they gave it. They delivered the letter. When they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Both Judas and Silas were also prophets themselves. Encouraged the brothers and sisters and strengthened them with a long message. After spending some time there, they were sent back in peace by the brothers and sisters to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas, along with many others, remained in Antioch, teaching and proclaiming the word of the Lord. That's a lot of verses for this event. Why would Luke spend so much of his parchment, so much of his book on this? Must have been important. I think Luke wanted future Christians to see three things. I think it was really important that, that they really understood three things. Above all, Christians need to see that we are saved by grace, not works. He said it, put it in the letter, it's in there all over the place. So don't ever forget that. I mean, write it in the, in the margins of your Bible. Uh, write it in your mind and on your heart. We are saved by grace, not works. That's really important in this place where we live, isn't it? We are saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. And also, Christians, don't try to import works back into your thinking about salvation. I mean, that's what the Pharisee party was doing. We don't, we don't want to go there. We don't want to do that. That's not going to be helpful in your walk with Christ. Number two, I think Luke wanted us to see that there will be internal theological conflicts. As we study the Word of God, we're, we're going to come up against these things from time to time, and it's okay. We don't have to freak out we don't have to go crazy here. There will be theological differences. They happen from time to time, and I think they actually strengthen the local church and the church as a whole when we work through them well. We're going to have to work through these things. We're going to have to work through our, our orthodoxy, what we believe, and our orthopraxy, what we do, 
And it's going to happen in the church. Even in the very next passage, which we're going to hear Pastor Josiah preach, he then goes into a difference between individuals, not in theology, but in practice. So here's an example in practice for the church. Here's an example of how two different methodologies have come into conflict with one another. How do we work through them? And it's his encouragement to us here, by the grace of God, that we would hold on to unity the best we can while not sacrificing right theology and doctrine and practice. Because we need one another. We can, we can walk with one another to help us really fully and faithfully walk well with Christ. And then finally, number three. I believe that Luke is showing us that theological authority is not found in one person or one high elite or one high guru who, who has a great channel on YouTube and says everything we want to believe or some social media Christian influencer or one person who wrote a book but through God's word, illuminated by the power of the Holy Spirit, together guarded and protected by all the Spirit-filled believers together, walking in this together. We need each other. It's why God has a plan called the local church. We need each other. There was a time in my life when I loved reading God's word and studying it, and I was all over it, but I didn't like gathering with the church. I liked hearing from a few really smart people or the people I deemed were smart. I wanted to get everything they said and never disagreed with them. Everything they said was perfect. I was going to agree with them and never really think through what they were saying. That's where I was at. Everything this person says is right, and I'm going to measure that against everything everybody else says. You bet. I was all about it, and I didn't want to gather with the local church. I found excuses why I didn't want to gather with the local church. I just didn't like those people. It just wasn't going to be my jam. But I was the one who missed out. I was the one who didn't know the Word of God because the Word of God calls us to be together with the church. The Word of God puts His Holy Spirit in all those people. Christ died for all of those people. I need those people immensely. Way more than I need my favorite YouTube guy. Way more than I need my favorite author. I need the church. I need you. And I hope you need me, because together we do this. Together we walk in right doctrine, good theology, like we've gone through with this whole thing with our, our members of the constitutional change because of a theological issue. It's beautiful. People bringing different things and having all sorts of discussion. That's what should be happening so that we can have a right view of good doctrine and good practice. We need each other, even if sometimes we annoy each other. Some of us have some really quirky things to say. Right, but we need each other. Can you relate? As we're about to head into a time of reflection and take the Lord's Supper together, this is what I want to encourage you with. I want to encourage you to think about these things. Right, have we imported or have you imported a works-based thinking in your salvation somehow? You're trying to appease God with your works and make him love you. Is that something you talk with God about? I want you to think about areas where you might have some theological differences, maybe some theological differences that are going to require you to turn to God's Word, trusting in the Holy Spirit, and actually work it out with some other people. And get together and learn and, and, and grow. And maybe, maybe you're like I was a while back. It was a long while back. You can take confidence in that when I didn't love the church. Maybe you need to work through that a little bit and say, do I really love the church? 
Do I really depend on the church and am I contributing to the church because this is God's plan? So let's let God's word and the Holy Spirit and together as we work and discuss in small groups and learning and all sorts of things, let's let all of that wash over us. And here in the next few minutes, let's reflect on these things and see what God has for us. Church, let's pray. Lord, I am so thankful. I'm so thankful for the church. I'm so thankful that you put other believers around me the one and others, to check me and to grow me and to, and to help me see because otherwise I would be selfish and misguided. Otherwise I would raise up my favorite people and make them idols. Thank you, Lord, that, that you help me see that we all get it wrong somewhere here and there. We all need each other. We need to depend on the Holy Spirit to show us the word. Lord, help us to be a church who depends on one another to work these things out as the Holy Spirit guides and illuminates your word so that we can get it the closest we possibly know how to and live it out accordingly and proclaim it to the world. What a gift, Lord. The church is a gift. Thank you for this blessing. Thank you for this wonderful local church right here. Lord, may we be people who love you, who love your word, and who love the local church. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. We'd love to have you as our guest. For more information, visit redeeminglifeutah.org.